Welcome to Radius Conversations, where we want to do real life with real faith. Our purpose here is to dive into practical questions about how to glorify God with people who have experience from a biblical worldview. I'm your host, Mariah Levitt. Hey, Russell, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. Always yeah. fun. Yeah. Any big updates since the last time we... Uh... We spoke. Well, I've got five children, so there's always an update, but I will I will spare Hold the people <laughs> listening from that from a Johnson family update. We'll wait for a Christmas card next year. Oh, great. I'll be looking yeah. forward to that. Yep, you got it. So we have been talking through the Beatitudes in church. Um and it is called the Red Letter Podcast. Do you wanna explain why? If Jesus were teaching today, he probably wouldn't take us all up on a mountain, tell us to sit down and listen for an extended period of time. He probably would use the culture and medium that we use today. And we think he might use a podcast. And so we thought, hey, let's call it the Red Letter Podcast. And Trey Sheely came up with that idea. We ran with it. And so um, this podcast is not the Red Letter Podcast. This is just what we normally do, talking about the Red Letter Podcast. And if we could be any more confusing, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thank yeah. you for the clarity. <laughs> you got it. I'm sure I offered a ton there. So um, it was mentioned briefly on Sunday that you had gone through with the campus pastors seven ways to kind of interpret the Beatitudes. So would uh, love to just kind of hear you hash out a few different ways that people look at the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes. Yeah, so Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Um, so when we think about uh, um, some of the most popular and famous statements of Jesus, but also some of the hardest statements of Jesus. And so you have Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where we find the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says some things that are incredibly difficult. When he says things like, um, you've heard it said not to murder, I'm telling you not to hate somebody. Or you've heard it said not to commit adultery, I'm telling you not to look lustfully at a woman. All of the sudden, it feels like the standard or the bar for spiritual life is near impossible because we all hate, we, we've all had thoughts. So now what do we do with that? And throughout the years, there's this, there's this trying to deal with the high standard and the high bar that Jesus, you know, he gives for us. Um, what we typically do is we try to evade the, the ethical teachings of Jesus by saying, well, he really didn't mean that you, you're not supposed to hate somebody or you, you can't look lustfully or you're supposed to gouge your eye out. He didn't really mean that. And so in the interpretive issues, we're trying to figure out how do I take Jesus literally but also not die under the weight of this this crazy standard. So there are, there are seven, there's probably others. I just went over this with the, the teaching pastors, the, the campus pastors, because as they read commentaries, as our people read commentaries, as they listen to other people preach this material, it'd be good to have this in the back of your mind. Some of these you won't hear uh, mainstream, but it's just good to know. So a couple of them would be um, like the monastic tradition. The monastic tradition would say several of the commands in the Sermon on the Mount are only for like the spiritually elite. So that would be monks, nuns, people who would say, hey, I'm going to live this way 
And not everyone's called to live this way. Only certain people are called to live this way. Um, That might even find its way into a difference between laity and a priesthood. Priests are held to a higher standard to live according to this, whereas laity would not. So that's a monastic tradition. That would couldn't be further than the way we believe here at Radius. Um, John, our lead pastor, would say, hey, priesthood of every believer, we're all called to the same standard. No pastor on staff has a red phone that gets to God faster or anything like that. We're all held to the same moral standard and code. Another interpretive um, interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount would be what we call an Anabaptist tradition. Um, when I say Anabaptist, we typically think of groups like the Amish um, Mennonites who would say, hey, the Sermon on the Mount calls us to live this simple, set-apart life. And it's not just for the priest. It's not just for um, nuns or, or monks. It's actually for all of us. And so we set up these colonies and we, we live a separated life. And we all try to live that life together according to the standards. So that would be one, one uh, interpretation. Again, I don't think many of us are probably going to run into that as we listen. But as you think about, okay, this is how people have applied the Sermon on the Mount. And that's how it's worked. Uh, one that would probably be a little bit more uh, mainstream would be Luther's two views, talking about Martin Luther, the great reformer. He had this idea of two kingdoms where we have a civic life and we have a personal life. So the idea that I would turn the other cheek is something really important for my personal life. In civic life, that turning the other cheek looks different because there are times we're called to go to war and we're, we're called to... Uh, defend, you know, freedoms or whatnot. And so uh, the reformers could clearly delineate between my civic duty and my personal duty, whereas I might, I might need to burn someone at the stake for not embracing gospel truth or becoming a heretic or something. And so that is the way they delineated between the two. You had these two kingdoms. Um, that one probably seeps in a little bit more than we would like. Uh, that's probably a podcast in and of itself, but uh, there is this idea that my personal life and my civic life can have two different styles, and so the Sermon on the Mount needs to be applied more personally than it would be civically. Uh, dispensational, it's a big word for um, guys like Chuck Swindoll, Tony Evans, Tommy Nelson. This one is one that would be fairly prevalent as you think about communicators today and how to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. A real extreme version would say, hey, the Sermon on the Mount really is just for Israel. It's just for the Jews. That's who Jesus was speaking to. And so he was trying to tell them, um, hey, your Messiah is here, the king of the kingdom is here, and this is how you guys ought to be living. And by the way, this is how you should have been living under the law for all of these years. Uh, more progressive dispensationalists would say, yes, he was clearly speaking to the Jews, and yes, this kingdom is uh, in the future at some point, and so the Sermon on the Mount will be perfectly exhibited in the future but there are some things for us to learn today. And so guys like Chuck Swindoll and and Tony Evans would probably have more of that approach. A lot of this is future, but there are some lessons to be learned. Uh, A Lutheran view, coming back to Martin Luther, as he kind of represents all the reformers, would be the idea that um, the Sermon on the Mount is law. It's not gospel. 
which means the law should drive us to um, show us more our need for God's grace in our lives. So I look at the Sermon on the Mount and think, there's no way I can do this. I can't reach this standard. I am in desperate need of Jesus Christ. I am in desperate need of God's grace on my life. And so that's how Luther would have, have tried to view it as well. Um, Jerry Bridges, John Piper, um, Matt Chandler, the reform, high reform guys of our culture, that's typically how they're going to preach it. They're going to say, you need Jesus because we can't do this apart from him, mm-hmm. uh, which is a fantastic way to, to preach and, and to teach the, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Calvin would have would have said, hey, it is law and it's not gospel, but there is some instructional value, kind of that same dispensational. It's it's not all one way or the other, but there is some instructional pieces of it. So uh, there's that. Sixth view would be uh, what we would call a modern liberal view, which is uh, this is just what it means to be a better human, kind of. Uh, and when I say modern liberal, there are those who would just want this to be a social gospel um, Chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount is nothing more than for us to um, just to go be, you know, good, friendly people out there and all of that. Uh, um, uh, A modern liberal translation might talk about more human flourishing. This This is what Christ would want for us. We can embody the kingdom today. I don't want the word liberal to throw people off as if it's terrible um i mean obviously in the south russell (laughs) (laughs) yeah i wish i could think of a different term but um anyway that that would that would be it Mm -hmm. and then finally um the seventh one which is really popular today with most of the commentaries that are being produced um in scholarship is this idea of a virtue ethics reading the idea that these that um there are decisions, moral decisions that we are to make, um, and we need to think about um, not just these moral decisions, but how to be a virtuous person in the world. And typically, a virtue ethics reading says, um, or a virtue ethics teaching comes from a teacher that perfectly embodies the virtue ethic that's being taught which Jesus Christ does here. So some people would say, hey, this virtue ethics idea was really popular, Socrates, Aristotle, so Jesus is mimicking that, and he is going to perfectly embody that. So when he says the Beatitudes, um, you're going to be persecuted and suffered, Jesus is going to be the perfect model of that virtue ethic by being persecuted and suffering. So um, when he would say, don't murder, but don't also don't hate, Jesus is going to perfectly embody that. And so that's a, a popular one today. Some people might pick up a book or um, listen to a teacher, and they may hear more of this, hey, we need to make virtuous decisions, and um, we need to live virtuously and morally in our world, uh, which sounds a little bit like the modern liberal, but... Um, very, very much these are behaviors I need to exemplify. As you're talking, I couldn't help but think, you know, there's a few that are probably, I I wouldn't fall into that school of thought or whatever, but there's several where it seems 
like a good idea or plausible. So how do you, how can we discern what is true? And I mean, we're just talking about the Beatitudes in scripture. There's so many things that are interpreted in so many ways. So how can we discern, I guess, rightly or with the Holy Spirit? And how do we know what to believe if we hear different people who think these different things? Most of it's going to come out in application. And, um, and, and the reason I went through this with our campus pastors was less about me trying to narrow it down to, hey, this is the one. I just wanted them to be aware when you pick up a commentary or maybe they read two or three different commentaries, I want them to see, oh, this is the, this is the tradition that's being taught here. This, this is the interpretive model that's being taught. And so that would be the main reason I would share it here is just for you to be aware of it. Um, it, Your dad just said, hey, I was reading this book, and once you went through these, it became really clear which tradition this guy was coming from, which interpretive model he was using. And so once you know it, then you can kind of say, oh, okay, this is how how it's being interpreted, and then... Once I'm aware of it, then I can make a personal decision, you know, like you said, led by the Holy Spirit, a biblically informed conscience to uh, figure out what my next step for application is. I would say all seven of these, these people came to grips with this from a biblically informed conscience, saying, man, this is how I see Scripture fitting together. This is what I feel like God may be calling me to do or to apply this. And from there, um, that's really important. I, I don't think any of these that I would look at and say, wow, you're, you're a heretic or this is really wrong. Yeah. Um, it might be some application that I might not feel comfortable with based mm-hmm. on my biblically informed conscience. But mm-hmm. I, I would hate to tell somebody, hey, you know, this approach doesn't really line up. I, I, I don't think any of these are... I think they all have their strengths and they all have some weaknesses and we just need to be aware of what those are. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. As we're, it'll, it'll keep coming up throughout the years as we're reading, I think the different schools of thought. So just thinking through that is, and, and just remembering that these were all biblically people who love the Lord and are following the Lord and have different yes. interpretations. So um, I think that's, really good to think about. I heard that you um, have a different take on kind of the overview of the Beatitudes. Yeah. So I'm just curious. Um, it was taught on Sunday, but what, what, what do you say, I guess, more like as practical application for people or when you look at the Beatitudes, how do you read that? For me, when I look at the start of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 1 and 2, it says, When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up uh, on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, that word disciples is really interesting because he hasn't called all the disciples at this point. We won't get that till later chapters. So when he's talking about disciples, he's using it in the in the most basic form that it can mean, which are people who are following Jesus. And that might just mean really literally. He went up on a hill. I'm following him up on a hill. And he looks at these crowds, and these crowds are all the marginalized, um, underrepresented, um, kicked to the side, looked down upon people. And that's the reason they're following Jesus, because he actually pays attention to them where the religious elite and the 
the the spiritual leaders of the time would have cared less about them. So then he says these words, um, the poor in spirit are blessed. So he's looking at a group of people, and he goes, that's you, and you are blessed. And he says, you mourn, you're blessed, you're gentle, you're blessed. He just goes through there. And when you look at all the other blessings, like list of blessings in first century, second temple literature, um, it's all stuff like blessed if you're... If your enemy fails, blessed if people listen to you, blessed if, you know, nothing wrong happens. That is not, I mean, Jesus' list is completely opposite of that. And so I think he looks at this crowd and he's, he's, he's offering them the kingdom to the group of people that would have been the least likely to have gotten it. And I think that's the reason the crowds were there is because they were where they were underappreciated, they're now being appreciated. Where they were marginalized, they're being brought in. And so when I read this, I see Jesus looking at these folks and saying, I love you, the kingdom is yours. And um, so that, that's the, the way I kind of look at it. And then the other part of this is, if you remember that virtue ethics reading, Jesus perfectly exemplifies it. Um, I think we would all agree that he was poor in spirit, he mourned, he was gentle, he hungered and thirsted for righteousness. Um, you know, he was merciful, showed acts of mercy, he was pure in heart, he was the ultimate peacemaker, he was persecuted, um, they, they spoke falsely about him, and so he is the perfect um, exemplar, if you will, of the Beatitudes. So yeah, I think... Um, I think that's what that, that, that's how I would look at it. I'd probably look at verse six, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, this idea that they looked out at a world where righteousness was not happening. People were not being treated fairly, um, justly, and they hungered and thirsted for it. Um, and so I, I think they they wept about it. I think they tried to be merciful and do acts of mercy for each other. I think they tried to be peacemakers in a world where this wasn't happening. And Jesus Christ was going to be the ultimate embodiment of it. So a little less about, hey, here are nine things you're supposed to do to find favor with God. And more, here's this great surprise that this group of people that were marginalized are being offered the kingdom to come under the rule and reign of God. Thanks for tuning in. If you have a question you'd like to hear on the podcast, go to Radius Combos page and click What Do You Want to Hear Next? A reminder that Radius Church exists to glorify God by making disciples, planning churches, and living generously. This has been Radius Conversations. We'll see you next time. <laughs>